0: In every job that must be done, there is an element of. Fun. Fun, 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 fun.
1: Light speed to wondrous and wonderful. The cover is not the best, so I open it up
0: and take a look. Ah,
1: if it isn't the only bookworm in town.
0: What's that word again? <laughs> Inspired. Working song. Ooh, a happy working song. I have to sing. I have to play. The music, it's, it's not just in me. It is me. We're happier when you don't sing. or other things that you can listen to or read about involving Disney, we'll examine it here. On this episode of Notably Disney, I am ecstatic about bringing on Christopher Merritt. He's a Disney Imagineer who has worked for the company for over 20 years. Uh, He's also a really well-regarded author, and his latest title with Pete Doctor of Pixar fame is Mark Davis in his own words, Imagineering the Disney theme parks. You may recall me discussing this at length at, during the last episode of the podcast, in which I focused on some many titles that debuted o- during the year 2019. It is fantastic. I use a lot of emphatic language because it is really true. I am so very appreciative of a book like this to come out to give us really the the amount of depth that I think we've always sought about such an important figure in the history of the Walt Disney Company, Mark Davis, an animator turned imagineer. He had two remarkable careers and the latter part, which is focused on his theme park days, is illustrated in really great depth in this book. So you may recall, before we go into the interview with Chris, I want to make reference to the last episode in which I focused on dozens of titles that debuted during 2019, and I realized that I focused on some examples of books that came out that were uh, written by some of our guests on notably Disney this past year and I realized oh my gosh I did not make reference to Dr. Dan Golding and his book Star Wars After Lucas which was a really fun release. It came out at the beginning of 2019 perhaps that's why I forgot that Uh, it was within this calendar year and it's a really wonderful title that examines the impact of Disney's acquisition of Lucasfilm on the features and some of the other projects under the Star Wars umbrella. So definitely check that out. The book um, is out in stores. I saw my local Barnes and Noble just the other day. And also check out the episode in which I talked at length with Dan, and that is episode 21. So that was just one of many great titles during 2019. And so let's transition now into a conversation with the man, or one of the men, behind Mark Davis in his own words. It's Christopher Merritt. And this was a fantastic dialogue. So let's jump right into it. So on this episode of Notably Disney, I am extremely thrilled and honored to be speaking with Christopher Merritt, Imagineer and co-author with Pete Doctor of the absolutely fantastic new book, Mark Davis in his own words, "Imagineering the Disney Theme Parks." Welcome to Notably Disney, Chris.
1: Wow, where do I uh, where do I send the check? Thank you. <laughs> very nice of you. Thank you
0: very much. It's uh, it's nice to be here and uh, talk with you. Well, and I know this has been a very eventful past several months for you with the release of the new book and um, discussing it in many different platforms and i consistently hear from folks in the disney podcast community authors and readers and other folks saying this is your must-have title for 2019 and perhaps of the decade and i I would definitely concur with that based on the based on how much valuable content is in this book and also how you and Pete present it so wow that's a lot
1: to me thank you very much i you know it was uh five years of, um, working on lunch breaks and bus rides and train rides and, uh, you know, just fitting it in wherever we could. Cause we've, you know, we're both have busy full-time careers too. So, but we, we both, um, we really felt, felt really strongly and, and passionately about this, that, you know, um, <clears throat> Mark's story at Imagineering hadn't really been told fully. It had been told in dribs and drabs, but, um, it's uh, it was something that really needed to to be told, and I'm I'm just you know couldn't be happier and, and more grateful that um, Wendy Lefcon at Disney Editions and everyone else at Disney Editions got behind making the book as big as it is because it's a big story. You
0: know, it's it's his second career. So, well, it's a very important individual in the history of Disney, both in on the animation front and certainly on the theme park front, as you both cover in depth here and. I understand that you had a really special relationship with both Mark and Alice Davis while in college. Could you talk about, as a college student, why you decided to reach out to him in particular, and what those early dialogues meant for you as as a young adult? <clears throat> well, I
1: don't, you know, I, I don't know how much detail you want me to go in before, but the, the 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 before on that is is kind of interesting to me too because. Um, when I was a kid, growing up in the 70s, they don't sell it anymore, but they used to sell this souvenir guidebook uh, that went with Pirates of the Caribbean. And uh, for, for you or your listeners who um, are familiar with it, uh, it is absolutely chock full of um, photos of them building and designing Pirates of the Caribbean, but especially artwork. It's, it's full of a ton of artwork. And almost all of it's by Mark. Not all of it, but but a a majority of it is. So when I was a little kid, I used to uh, copy those drawings. Sometimes I'd trace those drawings. And I didn't know who Mark Davis was at the time. But um, uh, it really kind of helped teach me how to draw. So that's kind of an interesting thing. And then uh, flashing forward to uh, the year uh, before I went to CalArts to study animation, I worked at the park at Disneyland as a uh, Jungle Cruise skipper. And uh, the Disney Gallery at that time was located above Pirates of the Caribbean. So uh, it was their first big exhibit. And uh, they would have, um, you know, imagineering artwork, which prior to that time, people don't really realize, but there weren't, you know, back in the, in the, in the 80s, uh, there, there really wasn't much in terms of books on the imagineering process or even theme park design in general. And, uh, you know, so, so to see development artwork for, for Disneyland attractions was a rare, unique opportunity. So when I went up there, up to the gallery and, you know, looked, looked at things and saw all these what turned out to be Mark Davis drawings, I went, oh, my gosh, that's the guy. He's, he's amazing, incredible. And then I was also uh, simultaneously uh, going to um, a junior college to get my, uh, my general ed credits out of the way before I went to CalArts. And um, so I had to do a paper on a modern-day artist, and I thought, well, gosh, I would love to do a paper on Mark Davis, and I think he's he's still around, uh, but I didn't know how to get in touch with him. So I actually sent a, a letter cold uh, up to the Walt Disney Studio, saying, hi, I'm a college student. Uh, would you forward this to Mr. Davis? I'd love to interview him for this paper I'd like to do about, about his work and his life. And believe it or not, they forwarded it to him. And a couple of weeks later, I got this really nice letter in the mail uh, uh, from Mark saying, "Hi, I'd be delighted to talk with you and come on up. You can meet with my wife Alice and I." So I was kind of amazed, but also excited. So I, you know, got in my car with my dad <laughs> and drove up there. And spent the day getting to know Mark and Alice. And, I, you know, he let me interview him. But uh, he he also, you know, uh, took me into his studio. Um, and, uh, you know, of course, my, my major interest in this was the theme park design. Because I grew up with Disneyland. I grew up with theme parks in, in Southern California. And kind of love them so much. It's become my career designing uh, for them. I'm currently with Walt Disney Imagineering. Um, but, uh, so, you know, I said... Well, you know, can you show me, you know, show me some of the artwork that you've done. And so he turned out he had turned in all his final artwork to Imagineering, but he kept all his rough pencil sketches. So he would pull out these folders of, you know, well, you know, kid, here's all my uh, here's all my rough sketches of Pirates of the Caribbean. And, you know, and I was gobsmacked because this is, you know, the, you know, ground zero of uh, of you know the most amazing attraction of all time right like where the ideas came from so it was really fascinating to me um and they couldn't have been nicer and more supportive and i you know i sent him a copy of my paper and you know and he kind of helped me with getting my portfolio together to get into cal arts and i just i just became friends with them and, and stayed in touch with them and When I moved from Orange County up to uh, Valencia to go to college, it was pretty easy for me to call them up and say, well, can I take you to lunch, you know, at Alphonse's or the Tam O'Shanter and tell me about designing the Enchanted Tiki Room or tell me about the Haunted Mansion. And um, they were just both so supportive and, you know, they never had children. uh, So they were really supportive of young artists. And and Pete uh, really benefited from this as well. In fact... I, I didn't realize, but, you know, Pete was going over there and visiting with them too, um, just asking him a million questions about, you know, how do you animate Maleficent or <laughs> animation questions. So just kept in touch with him over the years, and uh, particularly when, you know, I was trying to get into Imagineering, uh, really leaned on him for advice and, and how to how to do that and how to go about it. Because I, I just, you know, my bias is I don't think there was ever a better, you know, designer than mark davis he's such a master of staging and comedy and uh, interesting tableau and set designs so i'm kind of rambling on and on but i mean that's that's kind of the big the big picture of it you know i was really lucky to get to meet him and become friends with him and and learn from him and he and his wife were you know were really supportive of me uh
0: in in my life and my my goals you know
1: to uh, become a theme park designer someday
0: well, and what I love about what you described there is that it was a really natural and organic relationship and friendship that emerged from a class project. And it's not every day mm-hmm. that a community college class project ends up years <laughs> down the line becoming a humongous and really substantial Disney book. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm, I'm very, you know, I couldn't be more grateful. And
1: you know, th- you know, when I, I started in at Imagineering in in 1996 working on Tokyo Disney Sea and you know the first thing I did when I got there was you know go to the library and the um uh the you know the the art you know they call it the art library now but you know the vault where they keep you know all the old original artwork and first thing I did was look up all of Mark's artwork and there's so much artwork for all these different projects that were unrealized and Gags for the haunted mansion—they never used—and just just really, you know, jaw-dropping examples of design and and really illustrating a lot of the bed- bedrock principles that we use in theme park design today. Um, I always thought, gosh, you know, this really should be like a big, beautiful coffee table book, but uh, it never really happened when when Mark was alive. So I, you know, I'm really grateful that uh, Disney Editions got behind it, and I know it's a bit of a um, of a uh, hernia-inducing uh, book to carry around at 11 pounds, or actually two books to carry around at 11 pounds. But um, I couldn't be happier with with how, how big it came out and how much we have in there for people to look
0: at. Well, I would say it's a really nice companion to the Walt Disney Film Archives book that was put out by Tashin a few years ago. That's also mm-hmm. in the same territory and scale oh, and yeah. substance. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Tashin books will... Tash and Books will put you through your paces, but uh, they're amazing. I love I love them too. So. so Chris, I'm wondering if you could uh, expand a little bit on kind of those early dialogues with Mark. What were some of the, in, in terms of the content, did you see at the time that the, the notes that you were taking would eventually translate into something that you could use beyond a course paper? Well, I never thought
1: thought about it at the time, Um, you know, I mean, what, what I did was, you know, when I did that first paper, I recorded him. And, and very poorly, I want to go back and kick myself for not spending the you know dollar for a new uh, cassette because I had recordings of like music on these cassettes you know <laughs> and so I went in and recorded him and, and of course you know it didn't quite erase the old music so you've got like in one channel you can hear Mark talking to me in another channel you you know you hear uh, soft cell or something. <laughs> so it's uh, you know but I, I, it wasn't my I don't know it wasn't my intent I was I wasn't going. Oh, I'm going to do some big coffee table book someday if that's what you're saying. But I just thought because I did go back several times and record him many more times because I would go, like I said, and like take him to lunch and I would ask him questions and these amazing stories would pour out. And at a certain point, I thought, well, I better get back over there and start recording him because this is amazing, you know, amazing theme park history and imagineering history and just you know the, the attractions that are, mean so much to me. To learn about where they came from Um, also you know there are many other people who recorded him at very different times i i I did some work for a time in the 90s uh, with a uh, i'd call it a fanzine uh, the e-ticket magazine which was this really wonderful resource still is uh, for deep dives on imaginary history they were kind of the first people to do that uh, jack and leon jansen and leon jansen was a really good dear friend of mine who sadly passed away uh, in uh, 2003 But that magazine is well worth digging up old issues of for information. And uh, so they were recording him a lot. And then other uh, historians and Disney fans were recording him. And uh, he would come to Imagineering and lecture. He did a couple times when when I was first working there. He also, I brought him to CalArts a couple times to lecture um, on his processes. And for some reason, which was fine with me, he seemed to focus in more on the theme park end of things than anything else. So I guess if your question is, were you recording these things specifically to to think, oh, I'll do a coffee table book someday? No, but I just felt it was important information that needed to get put down and saved, you know, because I, you know, at least for me, I don't know how many people are as interested as me, but for me, I, I think it's fascinating.
0: Oh, absolutely. And I know through looking Uh, in the bibliography section, you have a catalog of all the different content that you curated. And it's clear that you interviewed him on several, many occasions during the 1990s. Mm -hmm. Do you have any sense of how many hours worth of interviews you ultimately conducted with him? Oh, gosh, tape recorded, I think I've probably got,
1: I don't know, seven or eight hours that I did. But then, when you but then all all the times where you know like I spent with him many many more many more hours than that of course, um, and uh, just uh, I don't know it's it's you know you look at the whole thing you look at all the other you know the, all the other interviews that Pete and I access it's you know it's hundreds and hundreds of hours not to mention hundreds and hundreds of hours of other interviews with other Imagineers because you know I don't know if it comes across in the book but. We had this problem. We were trying to do three things simultaneously in the book, which was, you know, number one, Pete and I really want to get across how cool and interesting it was to sit down and be able to get basically a personal lecture from Mark and Alice, too, because Alice would always, <laughs> Alice would either be sitting in the room or in the background, you know, cooking something probably and chiming in with her opinion on things, which is always interesting. Um So we wanted to give the reader a sense, well, you know, you're, you know, you're in Mark's house and you're sitting down and you're asking him to tell you, you know, about Country Bear Jamboree and how he developed it and what he did and what worked and what didn't work. And uh, with the benefit of having all the artwork and photos in front of you, we thought that was amazing. So that was number one. Number two, um, there are a lot of things that Mark never talked about or certain nuances of, you know, things that we wanted to get across that other Imagineers did talk about. So. I did kind of a ton of new interviews with people who are still around, uh, particularly a lot of the people who worked in the uh, machine shop in Mapo uh, with Mark, uh, actually building the figures. They had a lot of very interesting stories. Um, So we wanted to get those other Imagineers to, to chime in as well. And then Pete and I occasionally kind of set the stage. So when you look at the book you'll see, you know, the text in quotation marks, that's from Mark directly. And then when we're kind of setting up something or giving clarification, that's just plain black text. That's me and Pete talking. And then uh, when the other Imagineers chime in and and basically support what Mark's saying or give you more context, those are in these colored boxes. And um, our designer and uh, curator, Vanessa Hunt, uh, came up with the idea. We were, we were trying to think what's the style, what's the look for this book gonna be? And uh, we were looking at an old 1960s Disneyland guidebook, and it had um, differentiated a lot of different uh, uh, pieces of text with blocks of color. We thought that was really interesting. So we had to set it up in a way that didn't confuse the reader. All three of those tracks made sense, but they also supported each other. So that's why the other Imagineers are in those blocks of color. It's kind of an homage to uh, the old Disneyland guidebooks of the 60s. And of course, and then it made it, its way, you know, that kind of scheme, that kind of design scheme made its
0: way to the cover of the book, too. I love how you picked up on that and and shared that with our listeners, because as I was reading it, I was thinking of how well crafted and consistent it was in terms of the color scheme and also some mm-hmm. of those patterns. And it makes me think of that old uh, Walt Disney quote along the lines of that when guests walk through the theme parks, they'll recognize they would recognize if the details weren't there. And yeah. so likewise as I was reading through the book and, and looking at the design scheme, I was thinking to myself, it's very explicit in terms of where the material comes from and what stories are being told based on the presentation.
1: Mm. Well good. good. I'm glad I'm glad it comes across because I I I worried endlessly that it was, you know, going to be too much information that was impossible just to decipher being thrown at the reader all at once. So uh, really, I credit Vanessa Hunt and then our other book designer, Paul Wolski, who came in and, and did a lot of the final design because uh, poor Vanessa, she <laughs> she didn't know what she was signing up for on this book. She she works in our art library of the Imagineering Collection, and she personally made sure that every single piece of artwork in this book was re-photographed. Uh, to make the colors as accurate as possible so the colors in this book are are as close as they are closer to the originals than i've ever seen before and uh, paul really kind of picked up the slack while she was because that's you know you know thousands (laughs) of of of, you know you know pieces of artwork and and photos you know in in a 760 page book so paul really came in and, and did the final final design on it too. um I could bore you to tears talking about all the people who helped out with this. A lot, a lot of hours were put in on this book, but obviously it's it's pretty big. <laughs>
0: well, and that was very much evident in the acknowledgment section as well. The the massive team of individuals who were responsible for making this a reality and you and Pete being the ones kind of steering the ship. Could you yeah. could you talk about the process of uncovering rare artwork? I know you mentioned when you were visiting with Mark, how he would, uh, show you some of those drawings and sketches, but in terms of material that may not have been directly provided to you, how did that come to surface? Sure. There's a, there's a lot of different things. Um, I could say, and this is
1: something I kind of strive for in my books. I, I kind of, you know, I don't necessarily want to rehash the the same thing that's been published over and over again. And there are certain iconic photos in the book. Um, there's some pictures of Mark and Walt that have certainly been reproduced a lot of places, but, but really, you know, I, I really enjoy and strive for finding unique images that people maybe generally haven't seen before, or in a lot of cases in this book have never been published before. So there's, there's a lot of route holes I can go down on this. Uh, you know, obviously the bulk of the color artwork uh, resides with us at Walt Disney Imagineering. And what was nice about that is, you know, Vanessa, in the process of going through and re-photographing of these things, she found a lot of things that had not been cataloged before. So every once in a while, Vanessa would email me and Pete and say, you know, oh, my gosh, I found, you know, these rough sketches that Mark did. Or I found, you know, this thing from a, a Silly Symphony's dark ride, uh, you know, things. And I'm like, well, what, what is this? I've never heard of this before. So that's kind of amazing. And then Alice Davis being so generous with basically she turned over the house to us. And so we found you know, amazing photographs that Mark took, uh, but also all those rough sketches that I mentioned before that he used to pull out when I first met him in the 1990s. And I think those rough sketches, they mostly had not been reproduced anywhere except for some of the issues of the e-ticket magazine. Um, and what was really wonderful was to be able to go through all of them and pick things out and see Oh, this is really unusual. Or you can, you can see like, oh, these sketches of the birds, you know, lead into, you know, the, uh, the toucans in the tiki room or the drummers in the tiki room. So those are, those are two areas that make up a, a big majority. And then Pete and I felt very strongly that showing Mark's rough sketches, his pencil sketches, uh, it really shows you his thought process how he gets from the germ of an idea to a final idea. So for me, as a as a as a designer of attractions, you know, that's what I do. I do little thumbnail sketches of things, little exploratory ideas to get to the final version. So that was really interesting. And then additionally, I was thinking, well, you know, how do we how do we not show the same photos that have seen, been seen over and over and over again in many different books. And so I tried to start thinking outside the box. And one of the things I did, you know, back in the 60s and 70s, and really even into the 80s, you know, photos in at Walt Disney Imagineering, I mean, you're still not supposed to take photos. <laughs> it's, everything's pretty secretive. Um, so photos that had not been done by an official Disney photographer were, you know, few and far between. Uh, but I was trying to think there have to be more photos out there of, of the process. So I started, um, in my research, I, I was checking out old magazines and there are a certain number of magazines in, during the 1964 New York world's fair development who came and did articles on Walt Disney and Imagineering. There's a big issue in the sixties on national geographic. Uh, there was one in look magazine. Um, And uh, the Look Magazine one was especially interesting because the Look Magazine one, uh, I had not, it was only like a four page article and there were maybe four or five photos in it, but I wasn't really familiar with them. And so when you look at, you know, you look at an old magazine, you think, well, here's, here's the photos that made it through the final cut of the magazine. But obviously the photographer took many, many more photos, right? So where are the contact sheets? Where are the original negatives for those? So I started digging and and come to find out Look Magazine uh, went bankrupt at some point. I forget when. uh, And the archives of Look Magazine ended up at the Library of Congress. So then from there, I contacted the Library of Congress. And I said, I understand you have assets of Look Magazine. Um, Here's this uh, article from the 1960s. I'm looking for any materials you have related to it. And they did some digging. They said, oh, yes, we've got negatives. And so I said... Uh, but they said, you know, it'll cost you, I forget how much <laughs> to, to dig this up. So I, uh, sweet talked to my publisher and do paying for it. And they sent us, um, you know, low res, uh, copies of them. And I was like, oh my gosh, we've hit gold. And cause, cause what it is, is, and these pictures are peppered throughout the book. They're photos of Walt Disney at, um, a smaller building, which we still have on property called the 800 Sonora building which is where they first moved from the Walt Disney Studios. They moved Imagineering to Glendale into that building. And that's where they designed the early Jungle Cruise, the Enchanted Tiki Room, early Pirates Wax Museum, and all four shows for the 1964 New York World's Fair. And then these amazing photos that are not of Imagineers posing and pretending to work. But Walt Disney and his core team of Imagineers actually working. You know, you see there's pictures of Mark. It's in the Small World chapter. And he's pitching to Walt with Claude Coates and Rolly Crump and Dick Irvine and Colin Campbell and Sam McKim and Fred Jerger and lots of other people. Um, They're all pitching their ideas to Walt. And he's reacting to them. To me, that's amazing. Because, you know, one of the early things I remember saying to to Pete Doctor is I said, you and I shouldn't write too much. We should keep our writing to a minimum. Cause I don't think anyone wants to hear us expand upon why, you know, the 1964 New York world's fair was so amazing. I mean, it was, but they don't want to hear that from us. What, what people want and what I want is to be a fly on the wall, you know, in 1962, you know, while Walt Disney is talking to Mark Davis and Harriet Burns and Rolly Crump and all the other early imagineers, um, and coming up with ideas for things, that's what I want to do. So it kind of serves as a almost like a, a time machine device to see these early photos that people haven't seen before. But anyway, back to your, your early question, you know, um, how do you find this stuff? Gosh, I don't know. You do a lot of digging. I did a lot of digging in... Um, Parts of our library that, that aren't used often, uh, we have documentation manuals and sometimes there are like old Polaroids shoved in there, uh, things like that. And I've just always kind of been on a mission to come up with, you know, rare and unique images because I think that's what makes people, If you know, if you flip through a book and you're like, well, these are all the same photos I've seen before. This is all the same artwork I've seen before. You're less likely to pick it up and, and read it. Uh, so that's kind of what I strive
0: for. I try to do that with my first two books, too, so. Well, and that definitely comes through, especially considering that really each significant chap, uh, each significant attraction or piece of Disney is allocated a, a good amount of space. I know in a previous interview or context, I heard you say that a lot of the material you wanted to be featured in the book ended up actually seeing the final cut, which is pretty remarkable. Yeah, I am, I'm wondering in terms of just some of the different content. I know you talk and you illustrate uh, various pieces of artwork of concepts that never saw the light of day. There's a whole chapter on um, unrealized projects and then even within common uh, attractions and entities we're all familiar with, there were uh, characters or moments that never surfaced. How, How did Mark handle the notion of Of some of these ideas, at least based on your conversations with him, how did he handle the notion of that these really clever concepts didn't materialize at times?
1: Oh, he was incredibly frustrated. He, you know, he, he would work hard on something. And, you know, if it, if it hit, and people went for it, so something like, country bear jamboree or america sings you know that's a case of where it hit and the the timing was right and that was the level of show that the company was willing to support and he did it and it was fabulous there are lots of other ideas for things that never made it or you know things that you know came really really close like the western river expedition is a good example of that by my estimation he worked on that and pitched that for like eight years You know, he worked, he he tried to get that through from the, the late 60s all the way through into the mid 70s. And boy, it sure came close. I mean, there, you know, you see in the book, there are working drawings and there were announcements, there was a postcard, you know, showing it. the whole Thunder Mesa project, you know, the only thing that survives from the Thunder Mesa project is Big Thunder Mountain so he was incredibly frustrated or things like the enchanted snow palace you know where he are some of the most beautiful illustrations he ever did which it certainly wouldn't have been a you know high-end thrilling you know in the mid-70s you know roller coasters were kind of the rage and thrills were kind of what not just disney but the theme park industry in general were going for and here mark comes up with this really slow uh, boat ride uh, but really beautiful just just i mean look at those illustrations they're just absolutely absolutely gorgeous you know and he told me he was really frustrated because he could barely get people to come into his office to look at it that just wasn't the taste of what the company was going for at that time um so for him to put you know i I think any artist can can feel this way you know you're given an assignment or a task or you come up with something and you know if it doesn't if it doesn't catch on if if you know it's not going to actually happen you feel like well gosh what did i do that for well, that's a whole you know, big conversation we could have. Why do you <laughs> do these things? But not, not every idea you come up with is going to make it. In fact, most of the ideas you come up with are not going to make it. Um, I think there's a artistic process in that that is valuable to artists that helps you better uh, become a better designer when you actually do do the projects that make it. But I do know he was very frustrated uh, by that, um, particularly with the Enchanted Snow Palace. He very much wanted to see that realized, and it just it just never quite happened.
0: Yes, that that's disappointing. And when you look through this artwork, you're just absolutely amazed and thinking of what what these attractions could have actually ended up being. I also recognize that good ideas don't completely ever die, and sometimes they surface in new, sure. exciting ways and I yeah. I recall Look at
1: Look at the hatbox ghost. You know, we brought the hatbox ghost back,
0: which couldn't make me happier. <laughs> That's a, a nice tribute too. Yeah, I, I was thinking back and looking at some of the artwork um, that actually is kind of consistent across time. I recall, I think it was in the in volume one, there were some pieces of artwork of audio animatronic cacti for Nature's Wonderland, mm-hmm. and then there was a, a similar drawing. Uh, later in the book too so kind of going back to concepts that he really was enchanted by it sounds it seems like that was pervasive
1: yeah you know and it's really funny because he actually uh he didn't design those talking cacti uh herb ryman i believe actually designed those for the original version of nature's wonderland which was called the rainbow caverns Mind train from 1956 and you know I believe it was Herb and you know, there's a, I have to check the illustration, but you know, there are these goofy cacti that have human faces with mouths. And for some reason, like Mark latched onto that. Cause yeah, he did. He, he, when he was trying to come up with new gags for nature's wonderland in the seventies, he definitely put them in and then he tried to work them into the Western river expedition too. And so you, you see sometimes he'll recycle things or rework things or, you know, like a good example of that is in the jungle cruise chapter one of the first things he came up with along when he was doing the, uh, trap safari and the African veldt and the elephant pool, uh, he came up with a whole family of gorillas, you know? So there were, you know, there were like six or eight different gorillas doing different things. Well, that didn't make it, but then he took some of the gags from that. And you see that those end up in the, um, in the camp with the gorillas, uh, where the Jeep is overturned, which he does, you know, in the the seventies. And, um, The um, the gorilla that is supposed to be punching a crocodile actually ended up kind of swinging at it. He ends up reusing that. So he definitely wasn't above if he came up with something that he thought was really strong. He would recycle it if he could. Um, But 90 percent of the time, I would say he was coming up with original ideas for things. But those cacti are are really funny. They're so goofy. You know, it's just kind (laughs) of it's kind of like, okay, they're they're anthropomorphic cacti. (laughs) It's very strange. But I do remember that I was lucky enough to ride Nature's Wonderland a few times when I was really, really little, and I do remember seeing those, uh, along with the uh, the bobcat on top of the cacti, uh, that and the whole Rainbow Caverns, the Claude Coates masterpiece. So I don't know if you're familiar with that, but that Nature's Wonderland and Rainbow Caverns was
0: a was a stunning attraction. I I love looking back at old uh, little videos on YouTube of home movies that people filmed of these attractions. My, my aspiration is that some of this content will find its way on Disney+. Plus. I know the Imagineering Story documentary has been a good showcase of some of these classic attractions that are no longer present too. Sure. I, I'm wondering, because I think you kind of hit the nail on the head in in attending to Mark's cleverness, because There was a a note that was indicated, I think, in volume one, where it was that Mark was brought into plus existing attractions to make them better, at least in the early days of Disneyland. In your eyes, and and maybe uh, perhaps Mark even spoke to this, is there a sense of what his most valuable contribution was to an existing attraction at the time?
1: Well, I, I think, and he said this many times, I think if Mark were with us today, he would say the humor he very much uh, was of the contention that he was the first person to bring humor to Disneyland. And while I'm not sure if that's 100% accurate, the humor that he did bring to the park was certainly memorable. I mean, when you think of things like the trapped safari in the Jungle Cruise or the bathing elephant pool, all the gags in Pirates, all the gags in Haunted Mansion. I mean, he just, you know, he was a master of the funny gag. Uh, so I think that's something that he really brought to it. Um, he also, you know, it's interesting. Um, you think about those early, early animals on the jungle cruise and like, you know, 55 to, you know, 1960, um, not to say anything bad on anyone cause they did the best they could, but I, I feel like the anatomy wasn't necessarily always represented as good as it could have been. Mark was great at coming up with designs, you know, like, look at the, look at the, uh, the baby elephants, you know, in the baby elephant pool. Sure. They have a charm and they have a Disney quality to them because they're they're lightly caricatured. You know, I mean, you're never going to see like an elephant grin like that in real life, but they're all based on real animals and they're all based on real anatomy. And Mark was a master of anatomy, both human and animal anatomy. In fact, he taught anatomy at uh, Chenard, which is the uh, precursor to Cal Arts, uh, for many years. Um, he was kind of a, a genius at that. And so, you know, when you look at, you look at the poses, they're such strong poses, and, but the, you can tell the bone structure is there behind them. And it, it's one of those things that I think that people don't necessarily pick up on consciously, but subconsciously it's there. And I think if it's not there, if that, that basis in real life is not there, it kind of kills your, you know, you've heard the term suspension of disbelief. You know, Mm -hmm. that really suspends your disbelief because he's nailed the anatomy and um, then he can have fun with it. So definitely the humor, um, strong gags. One of the things he told me a lot was he said, you know, you got to have a strong pose. He said, oh, as I say, you got to make it read, right? So we used to have... um, An assignment at uh, CalArts I had uh, my one of my teachers was uh, Mike Giamo who's the art director on the Frozen films among many others and he gave us the assignment of um, designing a character in a silhouette because you know if it's all blacked out you're not looking at the detail but you see how clear the pose is and uh, that's a really great like assignment for both animators and theme park designers um because if you do it right you know exactly what you're looking at and so you know take a look at take a look at the gags and pirates and some of the key poses of, of some of those drawings of those pirates you could black them all out and still pretty much know exactly what was going on so that's a really masterful thing that he did too mark was great with color mark was great with just design in general um I, you know mark always gets called well he was the character guy but he was so much more than the character guy he did a lot of environmental design too uh so i I think you know all those things he added to it um his his toolkit of of things he added to attractions but i guess the probably the biggest one would be the humor that he brought to it in my opinion anyway and i think he would say that too
0: is if he was with us today yeah and i think that's very evident in looking through the book that his wit and charm is carried through all of the drawings and eventual uh, manifestations of those characters. I, I know you were really intentional about explaining how, you know, Mark was an animator, but he was able to translate that craft into the actual physical projects. The, some of the drawings, too, show almost like sequences of characters actions, so different mm-hmm. poses, like you mm-hmm. know, the the animated process. How did Mark detail his process, his craft in developing specific scenes? So for instance for pirates or haunted mansion, the notion of translating that animated sensibility to these real life figures. Mm-hmm. Are you talking in terms of how they moved at the end of the day, or are you talking just in terms of general design? I think in terms of the general design, because it's very evident in, in what you incorporate in the book, that
1: mm. he was
0: looking at things as, like, an animated process. Yeah. Well, you know, he started out with, with that, and, you know, he did,
1: you know, what I would call animation keys or breakdowns of poses – particularly with a lot of the work in the Jungle Cruise and uh, Pirates of the Caribbean and a certain amount of Lincoln for the New York World's Fair. But uh, he, he said eventually, he said, you know, that, all that work that I did on those, those kind of animators' key poses, he said it was kind of wasted work because he said really what I needed to do was get with, you know, Blaine Gibson, who was going to sculpt the figures, and then the machine shop guys, people like wayne jackson um you know and uh, dave sweninger and um uh people like that uh who were actually going to you know build the figures because the movement that he wanted um you know you're you're dealing with mechanics so there's only so much you can do of course now today there's some absolutely amazing things you can do i mean look at some of the figures in galaxy's edge and and how how well those move or some of the figures for the uh when you when the beauty and the beast attraction in tokyo opens up uh next year uh they were pretty sophisticated and amazing but um you know back then pretty limited um and he was you know and he was frustrated with that because you know a mechanical figure you can only push so far So with those sort of things, he would work directly with the machinists. But in terms of general design, um, it's like we show in the book. He did a lot of thumbnails. He did a lot of roughs. Uh, One of the things he told me is he said, you know, I will do 100 rough sketches of something to get just the one, either in terms of getting an idea or working out the staging. Um, There are some great little rough sketches. There was a gag for the Haunted Mansion that they did ever do, which I would love to see us put back in. Um, It's the uh, ghost of a great white hunter and all the tigers he shot are mounted, their heads are mounted on the wall and then there he's got a tiger skin rug that's come to life and is biting the the ghost on the butt. (laughs) It's pretty funny. Um, In his pencil roughs for that, you can see there are like three or four different ways he's trying to stage that to come with the most effective one. So he wasn't the kind of person to be happy with just one and you know and you know wipe off his hands and walk away and go that's it that's the one he would work on it you know until he got it just just as clear as he he saw it in his mind's eye so i i'm kind of impressed by that because there are a lot of people who will just do the one idea and go that's it and he 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 was a drawing machine, too. I mean, when you look at the amount of artwork Mark generated over his career, I know how long it takes to draw things. I couldn't, you know, he was, he was doing three, four, you know, gorgeous watercolors a day after working out the staging. I mean, it's 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 really impressive. So I don't know. Does that answer your question?
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And And you must have been reading my mind, Chris, because my next question was actually along the lines of his vast volume of work, so prolific mm-hmm. and such a short amount of time were, were you ever able when when you talked with him was he and i recognize this was later in his life and career was he still drawing and producing stuff for his own entertainment
1: yeah he was he was doing a lot of painting and then he had a couple of book projects that he was really passionate about which unfortunately never made it um to you know the, the two big ones that he wanted to do was um a book called the anatomy of motion which was all about anatomy and his theories on anatomy and if you've seen some of those drawings they have been published in a few other books uh and we have a few of them in our book um skeletal structure musculature and then how you know muscles and bones and joints you know work to to make us move they're just jaw-droppingly gorgeous drawings And then the other book he was going to do that I was sad he was never able to get a publisher for was called The Bite of the Crocodile. So for those of you who don't know, in the 1970s, um, Mark and Alice Davis um, took many, uh, many vacations and trips to um, South Sea tropical islands, mainly uh, Papua New Guinea area, um, partially to uh, collect kind of artifacts, but also just they were very interested in the culture. And Mark became very obsessed with the culture. He kept these absolutely amazing sketchbooks where he did sketches while he was there and then beautiful watercolors of them. And then he did a whole series of watercolors that were going to go into this book, you know, like a published book. With his recollections and discussions about the different tribes and, you know, different ones that lived along the Sepik River and – just, just really amazing, amazing design. And so he actually um, had a lot of notes and a manuscript, and he certainly generated a ton of beautiful artwork for it. That book didn't ever make it into publication either. So those were those were two big things that he focused on when when he left Imagineering. He retired um, in 1978, and then he came back and freelanced for a bit on Epcot, and then he did. Uh, he did a certain amount of work for uh, Landmark Entertainment for a while and a few little dribs and drabs, but but nothing really big after that. So he kind of concentrated on his his paintings and those two book ideas were kind of the things that he was really focused on
0: uh, in the 90s when I knew him. Gotcha. Well, and I, and I like, too, how you touched toward the end of the book on how his, his ideas for Epcot and Tokyo Disneyland were really important whether it's world of motion or some of the uh attraction artwork as well so i think that was a nice uh culmination of sorts to what was such a prolific period during the 60s and 70s as well yeah i mean he got prolific is you know you could just call
1: the book prolific (laughs) because he just you know you, you think about the iconic disney attractions particularly related to disneyland but also in florida as well and So many of the iconic ones, when you think about a Disneyland attraction, I mean, you think about probably Pirates of the Caribbean and Haunted Mansion first, Country Bear Jamboree, Enchanted Tiki Room, Jungle Cruise, Great Moments with Mr. Lincoln, It's a Small World, um, you know, the World of Motion at Epcot, uh, the Carousel of Progress, all these iconic, iconic things, even the dinosaurs that are in the train, you know, ride at Disneyland, which were part of the Ford Magic Skyway. Mark, you know, of course there are many, many, many Imagineers who contributed heavily to these projects, but when you think about the iconic things, when you think about the auctioneer and the redhead from Pirates, when you think about the hitchhiking ghosts from the Haunted Mansion, when you think about the elephants in the bathing elephant pool, these things are really iconic and they really came from Mark's hand. So that's amazing to me because to be one person and have that much
0: influence on that many attractions is a real rarity. I I would totally agree, and it's not always just the representation of the character and what what that epitomizes, but it's also how it makes you feel, and because of the humor and heart that was encapsulated in so much of that, I think that's really his lasting legacy, those moments that you described.
1: Yeah.
0: So I'm I'm hoping you can maybe share with listeners what ultimately would you like readers to get out of checking through this wonderful and massive book Mm. what are the takeaways
1: well the the takeaways i mean it's it's for many different people of course it's for disney fans and for people who love theme park design and want to learn more about it um i think it's for designers in general and and really specifically i i'm hoping that um people at imagineering and theme park designers for other companies Get a lot out of it in terms of, you know, because there's a lot of, I think I said this earlier, but it, there's a lot of the bedrock principles of theme park design that you really see germinating for the first time in, in coming from Mark's hand. And Mark made a quote of, he said, you know, I, you know, Walt Disney taught a lot of things to me. And he said, and I feel like I taught some things to Walt Disney. And he said, we all kind of learned together as we were doing this, this, you know, new art form. Um, because let's face it, even though there are, you know, amazing attractions going back to Coney Island in the turn of the century and even well before at World's Fairs and things, um, you know, it really is Walt Disney who who takes takes the idea of what we think of a theme park today and really originates it and kind of perfects the design of it. So Mark was right there, you know, five years after you know Walt starts this experiment of Disneyland and really takes it to, to new levels. I mean, especially with the New York World's Fair. I mean, those four shows are, are so iconic, and they did them in such a short amount of time. So I, I'm hoping that, that you know, readers get a sense of just how important Mark was to Imagineering, equally as important as he was to feature animation, which is an amazing career in and of itself. <laughs> That's one thing that, you know, Pete Doctory said. He said, you know, if Mark had just stopped <laughs> after 101 Dalmatians and never animated again and just retired, like that would have been an absolutely amazing career. He starts this other career uh, you know, through necessity, through Walt's insistence, but still he starts this other career and, and does just as iconic work in it. Um, that's kind of amazing to be as successful as that. Uh, so I hope people realize that in that. And I hope, I hope people realize, you know, that, that I, I hear Mark described sometimes as, well, he was the character guy. You know, he's the funny guy. He's the character guy. He really was so much more than that. He really was a true artist in every sense of the word. And particularly in the sense of never being satisfied with what he did. You know, uh, he, he was never one, um, much like Walt Disney, to, to look back at the past things he designed and say, well, that was perfect. I made that perfect. <laughs> His opinion was you could always do better. You could always improve. You could always, you know, make it better than it was by working hard at it. So I, I think that's something to get across to people, too. You know, as artists and designers, to to not just be satisfied with your first take at something, but really work it and try and make it as good as you can. And, and just personally, for me, you know, as an Imagineer, I feel like, you know, people... People save up all year long to come to our parks in some cases. You know, we owe it to them as designers to come up with the absolute best experiences we can uh, because people are paying a lot of money <laughs> to have those experiences. That's the least we can do. We owe that to, to people to, to make it as enriching and rewarding as possible because of the effort that people go through to, to get to our parks. And so I think Mark was a proponent of that. Um, so but I just I, I really want people to realize like overall like what an amazing
0: designer and an amazing artist
1: he was. So if that answers your question.
0: <laughs> oh absolutely and that carries through. It sounds like uh, it, kind of like what you're saying and what Pete doctor indicated in a sense he he struggled mm-hmm. twice. He was an amazing animator for feature films but also as a designer for the theme parks as a second career. that's a perfect way of summarizing yeah. Well, I'm I'm hoping we can conclude, Chris, with some uh, common Disney-related questions that I ask all of my guests. Okay. And uh, the first three are related to Disney music. So I'm wondering, (laughs) thinking back, what Disney soundtrack did you listen to most while growing up? (laughs) oh without a doubt the haunted
1: mansion a record um so i you know i i like many kids of the 70s had the story and the song from the haunted mansion which was narrated by the late great Thurl ravenscroft who i was lucky enough to know uh growing up and um Actually, I used to pester him. I used to work at the Pageant of the Masters uh, in Laguna Beach, uh, and he used to narrate it live. And I used to run up to his booth on my breaks and ask him questions about the Haunted Mansion. Um, And Ron Howard is one of the narrators in it, and the amazing Pete Renaday does the ghost host voice uh, in that. So for those of you who don't know, Pete Renaday is the voice of uh, Henry the MC Bear and the Country Bear Jamboree and, and many others um but then um oh my gosh the you know the music uh to to grim grinning ghosts by buddy baker um just just i don't know it's like a perfect song there's so much i love about that so i I would say the soundtrack i listened to most was that the haunted mansion record certainly i think
0: i wore out like three copies of it (laughs) oh that's fantastic and certainly an all-star cast for that recording as well yeah so Chris, what Disney song most recently got stuck in your head? <laughs> uh, you know, I'm get, well. You
1: say stuck in my head. I've been working on various uh, Frozen attractions uh, the last couple of years, and I'm back on <laughs> another one right now. So "Let It Go," uh, you know, has become my uh, pop goes the weasel, uh, <laughs> rotating through my head. Um if you're asking me what I enjoy, um, I see so you don't enjoy let it go. Well, <laughs> I see I've, I've heard it like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times working on it. I do. I actually, I do really enjoy let it go. But when you hear something so much, you're like, Oh my gosh, I've heard it so much. Um, so. And, uh, but yeah, but uh, in terms of, um, I still love the Enchanted Tiki room soundtrack. I know it's a bit corny. I know it's a bit dated to a lot of people, but I, I still really love it. I think it's a classic uh it's and um let's see i'm trying to think of like a modern disney uh song you know what i rewatched recently i rewatched hercules recently which i think is uh, is a really um should have been a bigger hit than it was i think from a design standpoint particularly it's an absolutely gorgeous film and um it didn't really strike me that much when I first heard it, but the go the distance song kind of like got stuck in my brain <laughs> from that. But I just that's a, a really enjoyable, really tight, uh, well-crafted story and great piece of animation. And the designs are, are incredible. Um, and I want to say, oh, am I going to get the name wrong? I'm not ta- this is not talking about music, but I, I believe it was Gerald Scarfe who did um, the animation for Pink Floyd's The Wall. He came in as a consultant on uh, the, the, design, the character design for Hercules. And um, really interesting stuff. If you ever, There's a, a really good book on the art of the making of Hercules that I, I recommend that has a lot of his sketches in it. They're very interesting. They're very sharp.
0: <laughs> they have a lot of dangerous looking points to them because right, that's how a lot of the characters were designed with those edges yeah, that are yeah. very distinct yeah another one that i really love that didn't make it as big as
1: i, I thought it should have was um, emperor's new groove yes doesn't really have a hit song per se but i think it's just really funny and like a great tight little story great character design super snappy um there's a lot to love about that too yeah, if we're talking about recent, if we're talking about classic, and again, this is not music, this is animated films, but uh, I, you know, Sleeping Beauty is is still hands down the most gorgeous uh, Disney animated feature I've ever seen. And then I've got a personal connection to it, because I don't know if you know, I was the art director on the Sleeping Beauty Castle walkthrough uh, when, we, when we redid it back in 2008. And so I really became a, a huge fan of um, Ivan Derol at that, at that time. Um, hadn't gotten into it that deep until I did that project, so...
0: We covered, I think, the whole Disney library there with that question. That's (laughs) fantastic. I love it, Chris. Yeah. So, and uh, this one might result in a few answers, too. The third music question for you is, what Disney film do you feel has the most underrated music? (sighs) So Let It Go will not be, Farson will not be in the mix. Yeah,
1: the most underrated. I think some of the music of Bambi is really beautiful. Um, the little April shower song, I think is, is pretty wonderful. I mean, I think the easy answer to that would be Fantasia, of course, uh, because, um, classical music is, is harder for some people to swallow. Um, but there's a lot to love in that. Um, and then actually going back to Sleeping Beauty, uh, the music that George Bruns did for Sleeping Beauty is pretty, pretty wonderful. Um, again, I'm not a music expert although i love music uh but uh some of the i'm going to say it wrong <laughs> some of the some of the the repeating um tones um oh my gosh i'm not saying this right at there are basically thank you motifs yes uh, yes uh some of the repeating motifs in sleeping beauty i really really enjoy there's um there's this kind of little flute kind of call thing that happens when uh, maleficent shows up occasionally and, uh, yeah, there's a lot
0: to love. Sleeping Beauty is an amazing film. All good choices for that one. So let's shift over to the two book-related questions, perhaps, uh, also in your territory. What is the most recent Disney book that you've read? Hmm. Recent Disney book that I've read? The most recent, strictly
1: Disney-related, is... Um, there's a book that uh, Paul F. Anderson, who's a friend of mine and a historian, um, he he spent a lot of time with Ken Anderson, uh, who I'm a big fan of, and he tape-recorded him hours and hours and hours, much more than I recorded Mark Davis. And uh, so he just put out a book recently, a uh, transcription of all those uh, conversations. So it's a lot to go through because it's, it's Ken Anderson just, you know, I don't want to say rambling because that sounds not nice, but, you know, he's just – he's basically – going off on many, many different subjects, you know, his childhood, his work at the Disney studios, his work in Imagineering, you know, the stroke that he had. So that, that's, that's a pretty interesting read. Um, And then another one I I read, I mean, I actually read it like two years ago but I really recommend um, is by uh, Todd James Pierce uh, called, um, Oh gosh, it's in the other room. Um, I want to say three years in Wonderland. And yes, it's all about okay. it's, yeah. And it's all about C.V. Wood and his relationship with Walt Disney and really how Disneyland, you know, got made. Uh, so um, really, like getting the location in Anaheim and, and doing all the land deals and all that, that was a major, major, <laughs> a major undertaking. Uh, And it's a fascinating story. And Todd did lots of work tracking down, you know, people who are not with us anymore, really kind of coming up with a lot of information I'd never heard before. So highly recommend that. And then I would say also, um, you mentioned Tashin earlier, my friend uh, Chris Nichols at LA Magazine, um, who's a really great historical preservation person he did this jaw-droppingly gorgeous book just simply titled disneyland which are just it's full of gorgeous vintage photos um of disneyland and of course it's a tashin book so it's massive um, and he scooped me on a few things one of the photographers i found who shot for national geographic and some of the images that we have in the mark book he he, he got his book out first and got a few photos that that I wanted in mine, anyway. Uh, but it's a, it's an, it's an amazing book. It's beautiful. So that's that's a really nice. If you if you like the Mark Davis book and you like your books big and gorgeous and you have to sit with them for a while, definitely recommend that Tashin Disneyland book.
0: Oh yes, that's on my bookshelf as well, right alongside the other Tashin book. <laughs> um, <laughs> all great choices there, Chris. Your next uh, book question is if you could write a Disney book on any topic other than Mark Davis, uh what would it be about oh boy
1: I've got lots of ideas and I've got a couple of ones into my publisher that I'm hoping they're gonna go for for my next book with them um so I'm not sure I want to say right now I don't want to like uh uh, ruin that but I, I I will tell you um There's another group, there's a group of historians and scholars uh, who have kind of gotten together, uh, Disney related, excuse me, uh, called the Hyperion Historical Alliance. And they they just started putting out a monograph imprint series for kind of things that are, I don't want to say more obscure, but they're not big title things that so like, you know, big, big publishers would not go for. It's a little kind of a small thing. And they did their first issue on um, Fun and Fancy, or not issue. The first book is on Fun and Fancy Free, right? And it was beautiful, and it was nice, and it was a small little book, you know. So I, I've got a few ideas for that on on past lost attractions that I'd like to focus on, uh, but we'll see because they've got several books in the pipeline already. So, and then I've just got some general ideas about some other books. Uh, so there's uh, there's one on turn of the century attractions in Coney Island that I'm, I'm playing with and thinking of. Uh, but nothing concrete right now. So I'm actually looking
0: for another book project <laughs> right now to do in my spare time. I was going to say, after working on, on such a massive endeavor I, like this, I you, would imagine. <laughs> you,
1: think, you, think I, you think I'd stop, right? But,
0: uh, yeah. I don't know. I just, you know, I feel like I really, it's
1: it's it's kind of my hobby. And it's, it's something I really like to do in my spare time. And then I just kind of, you know... I kind of try and come up I I'm I love books. I have a ton of books and I, I kind of try and come up with the kind of book that I would want to read myself if I found somewhere. So I guess that and that's and that's probably pretty good advice for anyone. Like, you know, not try to copy someone or just kind of grind something out, but like, you know, try, you know, if you're gonna write a book, do something unique and something that only you could do. And, you know, this this might sound really arrogant, but I really felt like this Mark Davis book, like only I and and Pete could have really put this book out with the depth and the specificity behind it, just because we knew him, you know, and uh, a lot of people, you know, knew and know Alice and knew Mark and Alice. um, But um, this was a very specific focus, you know, to, to really get into his theme park design and really do a deep, deep dive. And I've, I've always felt, you know, very um, passionately. I had a few people when I started this project said, you don't want to make this book this big. No one's going to want to read that. And I just, you know, I thought, well, I hope you're wrong because I want to read a book this big, (laughs) you know, I want to, I want to go down the rabbit hole and, uh, and do a deep dive into things. That's one of the things when I, when I worked with the, the e-ticket magazine, I saw, you know, I would help Leon Jansen sell the magazine at Disney conventions sometimes. And, um, he was so passionate, not he, well, he was passionate too, but the, the fans, when they discovered the e-ticket magazine, which is the ultimate deep dive, uh, all sorts of esoteric information and people were absolutely delighted to buy every back issue they could, because there's a thirst for this knowledge, you know, how are these attractions made? What was the mindset? What were people doing? What, you know, what was Walt doing? Um, I think it's all fascinating stuff to me. So
0: yeah, I agree. And I will definitely say there is an audience of us fans who appreciate the artistry and, and personal connection too. that you both as authors were able to contribute um, to this and last question for you on this uh, common set of Disney questions from this is a random question that I uh, that I offer with every guest so in in the case of your book what is one example of a rare piece of Mark Davis artwork that you discovered in your research that made you absolutely elated
1: (laughs) so many oh my gosh so many um well uh let's think here for a second cuz it's all rare <laughs> you know um Exactly there there is um uh, actually uh, Vanessa uh, turned up a piece of artwork uh, he he did a lot of um rehab designs for the uh, submarine voyage and so Vanessa found some pencil sketches for that and I thought that was really fascinating oh you know it was really amazing We spent probably three days going through, you know, um, Alice Davis's house looking for things. And in his desk drawer, there was kind of a um, like a stenographer's pad, you know, a little notepad. And it was all his handwritten ideas for Pirates of the Caribbean uh, when it was a wax museum walkthrough. And, you know, so these are little notes that he's taking as he's going through books. He's checking out on Pirates. And he's writing things like, you know, dead men, you know, tell no tales and, you know, all, the, all these things about pirates. And, and, you know, the little the early ideas for things that actually made it up in the final show. That was amazing to me. I mean, I can't prove it, but I think like that's probably predates Existencio's scripts. The whole idea of dead men tell no tales. Like, I, I don't know that Mark came up with that, but he might have. It's certainly
0: very early. So that that kind of made my jaw drop when I found that. That's awesome. Well, I, w- I want to make sure uh, as we conclude our conversation that if listeners want to get in touch with you on social media, where might they find you? Um, I'm pretty much on Instagram and uh,
1: Twitter, not so much, but I am occasionally. Um, you can uh, reach me at at C Dylan M. So that's at C D Y L A N M. And, uh, or just search for Christopher Merritt, I guess, although there are other Christopher Merritt's out there. There's a I uh, I think there's an opera singer <laughs> named Christopher Merritt.
0: Gotcha. So they'll, they'll know to the, the one who's writing about Disney content or posting sure. Disney things. That's definitely you. <laughs>
1: yeah. Yes. Yes.
0: Well, Chris, it's been an absolute privilege and pleasure in talking with you this evening. Uh, Really value what you and Pete contributed in making such a valuable book that I know a lot of us will want to have on our bookshelves and be looking through very often.
1: Well, thank you. That means a lot to me, and I know everyone else. And like I say, everyone else, you know, Pete and Vanessa and Paul and Wendy and everyone else who worked on this. There's so many people. Please read the acknowledgements because the the cast of people who who helped out with this book, who worked, who put in extra hours on the weekends scanning and photographing and researching and pulling things and helping us have access to things and just the general support of disney editions like i can't thank them enough because the book came out bigger and better than i'd ever dreamed it would so yeah. And it was really nice because earlier in the year I was able to uh, sit with Alice Davis and we didn't have a hard copy yet, but I had it on my iPad and I was able to sit with her and kind of go through the whole book with her. And she was really happy. You know, Every time she saw a picture of Mark, she said, oh, there's my love. So that was really sweet. So it's like, I, you know, I can't thank her enough for her
0: support over the years, too. So. Fantastic. Well, the book is Mark Davis in his own words: "Imagineering the Disney Theme Parks" by Disney Editions. Thank you again, Chris. Sure, thank you. Once again, my thanks to Chris Merritt for joining me for a really lengthy discussion and analysis of what it was like to craft a masterful piece of work with Pete Doctor and to have those conversations with Mark Davis, the man himself. I really valued. All of those insights I hope you took away some new tidbits about Mark Davis and Disney Imagineering more generally and as I've said many times this is a book that you have to own you'll want to showcase it on your bookshelf it's a beautiful uh, cover and the artwork inside is gonna be the, t- the type of visuals that you will want to revisit so make sure to pick up Mark Davis in his own words. I sound like a spokesperson for him, but I'm really just a fan and admirer of what the two have crafted. So check it out, and thanks again, Chris. Thanks again for joining me on another episode of Notably Disney. I invite you to subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. Follow me on Twitter at BNachman Reports. That's B-N-A-C-H-M-A-N reports and be among the first to find out about the release of new episodes. I also encourage you to send me an email to NotablyDisney at gmail.com regarding your thoughts of the show, as well as suggestions for content. So until we turn the page on another chapter, I'm Brett, and thanks for listening to Notably Disney.